I am Dr. Fernandez Falcon, and this is the Mentors Podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Carlos Roberto Hain, the chair of the Family and Community Medicine Department from UD Health San Antonio. Dr. Hain holds an MD from the State University of New York on Buffalo, New York, and a PhD on Epidemiology and Community Health from also the State University of New York and Buffalo, New York. He was co-director of the American Academy of Family Physicians Center for Research in Family Medicine and Primary Care. Over 20 years, the center studied almost 500 mostly independent, community-based primary care practices and completed the evaluation of the AFP's National Demonstration Project of the Patient Center Medical Home. He had served on the panels that published the U.S. Public Health Service Smoking Cessation Guidelines in 1996 and 2000, and was co-chair of the panel that published an update in May 2008. In 2005, he was appointed to the National Advisory Council to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. He received a Generalist Physician Faculty Scholar Award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and a Cancer Control Career Development Award for Primary Care Physicians from the American Cancer Society. He was elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, formerly known as the Institute of Medicine, of the National Academies in 2013. He has been the Family and Community Medicine Department Chair since 2001 and received the Dr. and Mrs. James L. Holy Distinguished Chair Patient Center Medical Home on 2015. Dr. Hen also continues to be a full-fledged family physician caring for his patients at UT Health Physicians San Antonio. I wanted our first podcast to be um, with Dr. Hain. I have uh, been mentored by him for many years now, around 10. I know of him to be one of the best uh, physicians that I know and also one of the best mentors that I know in um, I wanted to establish the tone of this podcast uh, with him as the first episode. Something funny happened. We, um, of course, we are trying to establish a routine to um, record this podcast. And um, we recorded one time an excellent episode and um, we didn't know how to establish or better said, we didn't know how to do it. Um, the second episode is one that you're going to hear now. We also made a mistake with the microphone's connection and what you're going to hear is a half an hour that I was able to rescue after heavy processing on uh, Adobe Audition. So hopefully you will enjoy it. Um, in the podcast, I'm accompanied by two of our interns, um, PGY1s for family medicine, uh, for the family medicine residency program of the uh, family and community medicine department. These are Dr. Jordan Kamsmith and uh, Dr. Fehima Dawi. So Jordan, Fehima, and me wish uh, you will enjoy this uh, episode. Good evening, Dr. Hayan. So, um, to begin us off, um, you know, we, we kind of started this podcast to talk about your experiences getting to this point in your career and what you would do different, or if you were looking back and talking to yourself at my stage of training with Fehima's, or even Dr. Falcone, what you might tell us uh, getting to this point. So is there any single pearl that if you had five minutes to talk to yourself that you might pass along? 
eat through to yourself. Don't uh, hold back and the pursuits of uh, what you see as your mission or vocation. Accept it and plow through and recognize that there may be days where you don't, it doesn't feel like that. You feel like you're wasting your time. But frankly, be true to the inner compass you may have in terms of what you're trying to do to change the world, to, to make the world a better place. Perfect. And so the last time we failed recording, and so there was a real good conversation that we want to reproduce. So you tell us your story. But the, exactly like you did the last time, okay? There's not a chance. There's not a chance of that one. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't even remember what I said. So you started when you decided to be a physician. When did you start to or say or decide? When did you decide? So I grew up in Panama in a family where um, there, no one in my family, in my immediate family was a physician, but I, it was something that seemed to be interesting to me. Uh, my dad tried to get me to be a marine biologist because I was his best friend if he felt like there were too many doctors. I, as a high school student, decided to do a health needs assessment in a, in a shanty town near our town, and we went from home to home asking questions about their health needs, and then tried to put the cousin into helping out, and my cousin happened to be a cardiologist and saw some patients and such, but that sort of stayed with me. I, came to the States as a, after getting a, uh, a scholarship to Niagara University in Western New York, where I uh, studied biology, with my initial plan being to study medicine in Panama, but this was an opportunity, so I came, I uh, finished was not eligible to apply to medical school in the United States, so I went back to Panama, where I was planning to start school, but none of my work here was going to be accepted, and in the meantime, I was um, in, in close touch with the person who eventually became my wife. And uh, during the year with them when I was there, my dad, who was a professor at the university, died from a heart attack. And I was the oldest of five children. And I had to make a critical decision. Do I stay home and try to help my mom with uh, the day-to-day -day activities? Or do I carry on and continue to study? So I decided, we decided to have me returned to the States where I did a master's in epidemiology and uh, got married and then discovered epidemiology and decided to, to get a PhD and get more training. When I was in, I really thought that I was going to be an epidemiologist for the rest of my days. I, um, when I was almost done, I discovered that 
most of the jobs in Latin America for public health requiring MD. So I said, I guess I'll go to medical school. And at that point, I, I went to medical school. I, we had a growing family. Our first child was born before medical school. Our second child was born the day after the anatomy final. <laughs> and the third child was born the day after the surgery final. In the meantime, I worked on my dissertation. I just want to say for somebody that doesn't know that, that's really, really difficult. Well, to go through medical school with children. Well, yes and no, because part of the, the family structure was that my brother then came to live with us while he went to college. And then he and I took turns in terms of knowing, in terms of who was, who had diaper duty, depending on who had a test the next day. And my wife was working full time as a nurse, an oncology nurse. So in the evenings we had to share the duties of the diaper and, and feeding and all that. But you know, in looking back it wasn't, a big deal, you did what you needed to do. Similarly, I didn't quite finish my PhD before I went to medical school, so I, worked, I, I wrote my dissertation while in medical school during breaks. And, uh, and I can't imagine that. And like, I defended as a third year medical student during my OBGYN rotation and said, can, can I have a half day off so I can go defend my dissertation? I, I mean, they, they couldn't say no, right? No, they, they said, what, are you going to take one? No, no, just one, one afternoon. Half day. It's incredible. But, uh, you know, the, the study was uh, paid by the NCI. I, I sort of sat back, collected the information. It was, a, it was a study of 1,800 smokers who call a stop smoking hotline, and we were trying to understand what was the best way to address it. So, I, uh, so like I said, I went into medical school with the idea that it was going to be something that I just put aside and was uh, letters up to my name. But I discovered clinical medicine, and, and then I fell in love with clinical medicine. Having a young family, I had the, uh, you know, when we were expecting, we, we had a mission for uh, high paramesis. Uh, one of our kids had a uh, febrile seizure, so he was admitted for uh, that. And so along the way, when I was doing my OBGYN, I had sort of first-hand experience in that sense. But uh, it was a family doctor, our family doctor, who sort of put us together. I mean, at one point, my wife was having an asthma attack, and she was pregnant, and people in the ED had no idea what to do with her. Uh, to pregnant, so my family doctor said, no, here, let's treat your asthma and you'll be fine. So, uh, that's how I sort of got into family medicine. I can go on, but I think that might give you an opportunity to ask questions. So you said that something of your cardiology cousin that you helped at the beginning, of the very beginning of your career, stick with you? No, not really. Well, what stayed with me was the, the sense of service and the sense of helping people and compassion and, and the sense that people who were on the margins needed to be helped. 
so the, the sense of social justice was very deep into my fiber. My dad was a, a, a teacher. He was a he was a professor, but he was also a leader in a in a political party that in those days was illegal. So it was the Christian Democratic Party, and and the and the motto was liberty and social justice. Was the really the intention to be between capitalism and communism and having a, a third way that was affirming of human dignity and of justice. So that's in my fiber. So when I talk about myself, and I think that you have heard me say this. Many times. I, my primary identity is that of a politician. But I understand politics as the art of making the necessary possible. So how do we make it happen? There's a lot of there's a lot of necessary stuff to do, but how do we make it happen? And, and that's uh, to me is what I bring to the table. But I bring it from a perspective of public health and a perspective of clinical medicine. And really, there are other stories to tell. So, a couple of times you told me, and, and correct me if I'm not getting this right, that. Uh, what opened your eyes was your education as an MPH in or in clinical epidemiology. No, I got it wrong. It's not, it's not an MPH, it's a PhD. It's a PhD. In epidemiology Sorry. and community health. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, it opened my eyes to a whole way of looking at the world that is not just an individual, but it's really the whole population. And it's really about looking upstream. You know, what's causing, what, you know, only 20% of health is is dependent on clinical care. 80% is on social determinants like poverty, like education, like opportunities. Um, so being aware of that and then trying to do something about that is part of our mission. It sounds like, Dr. Rayan, that you know originally you have the goal to go back and take care of you know people of Panama where you grew up. At what point? Um, did you want to apply this like heart of social justice to your patients here in the states? Excellent question. I, you know, to this day I sort of wonder about that. Part of the issue is that Panama would not recognize my training or my specialty, and I would essentially have to do an internship. And um, you know, as I got older and my kids started to grow, I had opportunities to do it. My first job was with the uh, Puerto Rican community in Buffalo. So I, I went to school in the University of Buffalo for medical school and then I went to Case Western for my residency and my fellowship. And when I went back to Buffalo, I um, worked in the Puerto Rican community. And what I did is I said, I want to know what needs they have around me. Yeah. You know, I want to know more than just what the people show up. So because I had worked in Buffalo and I knew the professor that taught me survey research, I partnered with him and said, can we do a study of the community? And I wanted to be a representative study. So uh, we did a study of five census tracts and we, we, had, we had a systematic sample. That means that every fifth person, fifth household after a random start, 
would be sampled, and then everyone in that household, we would get information about it. So we did that. It was 860 families. We had a couple of medical students and a couple of uh, nurse, nursing students that happened to be Jehovah's Witnesses. So they were used to not getting a no for an answer, and they collected amazing information related to, to not only prevalence of disease, but also needs and other components. And that's, that's called the Lower West Side Health Needs Survey. It's a classic study in Buffalo that then allowed us to, to really do transformational work in that community. One of the places, one of the places that was there was the hospital called Columbus Hospital. It was in the middle of the community, but the nickname for for the hospital was in Matadero. So it was really not a very good hospital. For those that don't speak Spanish, the um, house. the lower house, the, yes. the lower house. Yes. So. Um, so we used the information to then talk to health systems and they essentially put, they erased, they, they created a brand new facility. The facility had not only primary care but dental services, physical therapy, and I wanted to have a mammography unit because mammograms were very, or cancer screening was very, very uh, rare at that point. Uh, and we did that in collaboration with a, with a uh, civic group. So it was uh, community participatory research before the term was even real. So they helped us do the study, understand it. It was their, our study together, and we interpreted it together. But I'll tell you a quick story there. So we wanted to have the facility with a mammography, and we have data on breast cancer screening and, and such, and so I asked for a meeting with the head of radiology of this health system that was pretty large, who was building a new facility. The guy showed up 30 minutes late, and he said, absolutely not. And, um, you know, I had the data with me, and I said, well, Dr. So-and-so, I just want to make sure that you you want to take on responsibility for the early death of these women. They said the women who are going to die because of that. And he goes, oh, well, uh, well, uh, let me see what I can do. So you made it real for him. And so that's the same connection that you say before, which is the big picture, but I know you, and I know that you're very much about the small picture, about your patients and knowing them every time that you call me for admission in the hospital, you tell me the whole story of the whole family. And so I just want to bring this up. I think that I'm hearing for somebody that is considering a career in family medicine, one of the things to understand is a little bit more of the big picture. So that will be useful education. Context. You know, we are all about context. You know, what, what is the reality? So, for this, for that particular encounter, the rest of the story is the next week he came in and said, okay, I'll do it, but it's not, there'll be only be screening. I said, sure. If they need uh, a diagnostic, I'll, we'll drive them there. And then he said, it has to be good. I said, I want my mother to go there. And long story short, there was some water for you when that was open. But that's, I think that's an example of the power of data and the power of local data that you all understand. And I think there is, a, there is potentially a connection that it can be made to clinical uh, 
data. I love the stories of my patients. I have patients who are guitar makers, or they are artists, and I also have patients who claim the hospital, and they are CEOs of hospitals. And by the way, I only take care of VIPs, <laughs> because all my patients are VIPs. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a rule of the service. There are no VIPs, everybody is a VIP. But I like the, the way that you say it, how you brought in that story, the big picture that you have been working with uh, all big data and how you made it very personal in terms of these women are going to die uh, to you, him you are and you're going to be responsible for it. Responsible, yeah. <laughs> now, how do you maintain that now, you know, in your role as the chair of the department, you know, that has to include a, a good bit of different work than maybe that specific, you know, day-to-day, -day, daily with the, the patients. How have you maintained that? Yes and no. Some of it is similar, but there are stories that I cannot tell you when I'm class. Right. <laughs> no, of, of course, no. But because I think part of the issue is, and again, I'll, I'll go through the theme that you want to stay true to yourself. And, uh, and I think there, a lesson that I learned is that, you know, I, I may have mentioned this before, you know, before I have a difficult conversation with my, my boss, I always ask my wife, is it okay if I get fired? And she always says yes. And, and I think that that just frees me to really stay true to my principles and not compromise. And, you know, there, there are times when I say, well, if that's what you want to do, you need to get somebody else to do it, so I won't do it. And I think that's a, you know, integrity is a, is a, it's a very powerful tool. And, and I, in terms of advice, keep your integrity, because once you lose it, it's gone, and you cannot retrieve it. Did you get that from your father? Do you think that that was from your father? Well, that's a sad story, actually. You know, I, I'm happy. Well, I'm not happy, but I will share it with you. As I mentioned to you, my dad was a, a leader. He was he was uh, raising the next generation. He will get kids and input. Everybody in town knew that he was a leader in Connecticut. But he was also a professor. But he was a professor who never had a, uh, a permanent position because of he of the political party that he was in. At that point I went to college, my sister was in college, and eventually he essentially said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll join your party, and he went to the other party, and I think that broke his heart. So he died from a heart attack, but I think he died from a broken heart. Well, so that came from your father. He, he taught you not to do it. Be true to yourself. Well, I think that the lesson I took away from that is I'm not going to let anything like that kill me. Right. And, um, and I haven't so far, and I don't intend to, to change that. Questions? I do. I have a question, Dr. Han. Um, I think very often people that do have a heart for social justice see so many problems, and don't very often, they feel like all the problems are far away and they want to do something to help. I think that's very amazing that you know you looked around yourself your community and figure out what were the needs there i think that in and of itself is something for people with the heart of social justice to to take to take like thought into but what are you know some words of wisdom for people that do want to you know take take claim into their community make a change at home act locally yeah so so, so i think that you know what, what is this Think locally and act locally. I, I, I think you have to think locally and act locally, frankly. 
part of it is you have to see the reality you have in front of you. You have to see the opportunity that you have, and then how can we make the best? And how can you? And and, and it gets to a point where I am, where, where really the my job is not so much to do, but to support and to and to encourage and to unleash and let it let it be, let it implement. I I I strongly believe that we have a purpose in life and. Our purpose is to make it better. And, you know, one of the things that I'm learning, or that I have learned also, is that we don't always see the fruit of our labor. We are, we sometimes plant, but somebody else uh, harvests. But we need to do the best planting we can. We need to do the best uh, uh, nurturing we can, and we'll see what happens. And it doesn't have to be in a lifetime even. And it has to be a journey that, is, that has a direction and it has a purpose. Kind of in that vein of talking about, you know, the work that you do may not be the work that you know, gets seen later on, not reaping those benefits. I know, you know, kind of one of the big things that you have worked on specifically that make that possible in our practice is integrative medicine and making sure that, that we have um, resources integrated into our clinics. Um, how have you used that to tie into your other passions as well? With uh... so, in, in a, I imagine uh, Jordan that you you mean by integrative medicine, sort of a, a very expansive team that helps and is connected. Mm -hmm. I I pride myself on that. To me, that's sort of the the labor of my life. And it's. Uh, it's, it's recognizing that healing happens not only in the clinic but in the community, and, and finding in that sometimes healing doesn't happen because there's no trust. So trust is a, sort of a, a key element from my perspective of what we need to engender and what we need to be healers. And you know, a good example is our promotores who are trust builders. They engage and they connect and they heal and they are healers so we are so fortunate to have Dr. Gonzalez Schenter who is a, he's a brilliant conceptual thinker about how that works and implementing. I mean my dream is to then bring it up to scale to have a model like that we have here where we have you know or behavioral health consultants, and we have you know ten promotores, and we have uh, two clinical pharmacists, and dietitians, and, and RN care managers. Those are all part of the team that primary care has. So a high quality primary care need to have all those components. And, uh, and my hope is that you know you will not settle for any practice that doesn't have it. But how, how did you bring it up? Because it seems obvious now that we have it, right? But I know for a fact, because I was here uh, at some point, that that was not obvious to the people that you talk and the people that you get the money from. And um, how did you deal with that fact? Uh, how don't, don't you get mad? Because I know that you have really clear ideas on what is needed. And then you have this other part of you in which you are always 
working slowly but surely there's never a no like you said one time it's just how, a matter of how much time it's going to take you to get to yes and so how you don't get mad so well the specific answer to your question about the team is that you know it was a wonderful opportunity that was created by the Carnival Carriage in terms of the 11-15 waiver that allowed uh, primary care to be creative and innovative. So we thought that out and we said, oh, let's have a team, let's have a team that does these things. But this was something that was not evident for everybody. And so how did you articulate that in terms of leadership? That's what I'm going for, I think. How do you come out with your passion to other people that don't have your passion and don't have your understanding of the ground and, and make them see it? You smile. <laughs> <laughs> you like you, you embrace. And, and you uh, control. You know, I, I think that a great example is the fact that you guys now take for granted that we have hospitals, nurse practitioners. Uh, great example, yes. When that started, uh, there was a lot of pushback from the faculty. How dare you put in a nurse practitioner there? Uh, I think, you know, now I think people have a hard time imagining a service that doesn't have that. But uh, for, for me, it was an opportunity to bring in interprofessional training. It was an opportunity to really benefit from that. I mean, I, in those days, we were having two faculty, frankly, to, to take care of the service because it was so big. And this was an opportunity to blend and respond. I don't have a preconceived notion, despite what you may think, Dr. Facon. I don't, I don't have a... I used to respond to the opportunities, and I... I How did you see that opportunity? How did you present it yourself? Give me a little bit of background, a story. I How did you see it? You were there, I, I the, the, the service was big. I was then attending, I was, uh, you know, sort of struggling with uh, 30, 40 patients in, in the service. I, I thought that it would be helpful to have a nurse practitioner to help. So initially Betty came and and she would take the patients who were podiatry, or or she will follow the patients. You know, we would do the initial HMP, and then she will follow through. And and in, and in the process evolved to the point where she was also teaching, and taking care of uh, you know safety and other components. But it was really it was also that humility to say, you know, family doctors don't know everything. And we can have folks. So I think humility is the other one that I would say don't ever feel like you're better than anybody, but don't let anybody tell you they're better than you. Right. That's but, the other part of how. But I, I, I think that that is a really important point because I think that your ability to see no spaces has been somehow based on your humility to say, or oh, maybe there's a better option here. Because we know for a fact that many people will not have accepted the notion that a nurse practitioner will be basically faculty, and not only faculty, but core faculty to us. Now it's evident to us, but before, when you were there... It, it, it didn't start that way. It was initially there to help, and, you know, to take care of some of the... And then I want to bring something up more that I have seen, that I think that it's important to say, the humility that you bring 
is also allowing you to grow people into roles. And so how do you do that? Uh, get out of the way. That, that's, a, mean, that's a good one. That's, you know, that's perfect. I, I, yes. I think that you, you trust people. So I think trust is a, is a theme. And, uh, and then you also are ruthless when people are not trustworthy. And you don't hold back and you get them out. You don't hesitate when someone is toxic to you don't tolerate one wise. So we have a faculty to, I'm sorry, but we don't have any warm bodies. We don't have any seat warmers. Mm-hmm. We have people who are mission driven and dedicated, but that required 20 years of, of pruning and growing. And do you think that that's something that you want to teach to you know somebody that's growing up in the ranks uh, in terms of having a vision for mission? Because I always talk to you about mission, and I think that that's one of the big things for you from the beginning when I met you, I perceived that you meant what you said. I, I do. And, um, and I, so I think that, again, the integrity is the important part. So the change of culture was something that was driving, driving, not driving, driving this project of yours from the beginning. Yeah, but, but I, I think that you bring people like uh, Ramin Porsani who just boils down, we're here to serve. We're here to, to actually, what he says, is alleviate suffering is the words he used. So that, that just kind of distills it to what we need to do, period. And uh, So then is getting the right people? Absolutely. And, and also, but also having the integrity and the you have to be sufficiently uh, brave to say, you are going to change the world in such wonderful ways, but not here. It seems it almost like the humility to also understand when that mistake has been made or when yes. when a choice has not been correct and, and understanding that maturity. And I think that's something that, that, that you guys have instilled in us quite well and you're fostering, at least in the choices of people that you're selecting. Um, it definitely seems like a characteristic you're trying to kind of breed into the program is is knowing one's limitations and identifying those opportunities for growth and opportunities for integration of, of other you know other specialties or other um, you know practitioners. Yeah, I think that I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. 